Well, while we're waiting for others to drift in, thought I'd share a little joke. Someone just sent me. The past, the present, and the future walked into a bar. It was tense. Not very funny. Very funny. Very funny. Well, it is it is punny and funny, but it there is really something to it. Um, that when we live in the house of time in our mind, uh, there it does tend to uh, create a bit of of tension. I call it a state of suspended well-being, a state of suspended happiness. Associating our happiness with the future, which doesn't really exist, just as an idea in the present. Associating our well-being with what's happened before. That doesn't exist either. To the degree that we dwell in the imagined past and imagined future, and even in the, our stories about the present, we lose the, the vitality, the ease that comes from being simply aware. Uh, so one of the things that we discover in our practice is that there really is only, um, only and always now. And even not even the idea of now, because there's no place that now is either. But just life, experience. And we see that, uh, as one teacher put it, uh, reality is what makes the now so vital. In fact, you could call, I think, better than now, better than present, uh, I think the most effective word is reality. But reality is what makes uh, this, when we're in reality, there's a vitality. It says reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. So you will notice in the course of your practice, you won't stop thinking about the imagined past or imagined future, but you'll recognize that, that these are simply thoughts arising in the present moment. And you'll realize in, that in fact you have never left here. You, you are only and always right where you are. You only imagine that you go someplace. Why I say this is because if this is really all there is, you might as well um, notice it. You might as well embrace it. You might as well, uh, you might as well benefit from uh, the, the, the juice, the heart, the love, the connection that can only be found uh, in, in reality, in the reality of the present moment. And it's, and it's really, in some ways, a crime. It's, it's shameful. It's sad that we um, overlook this open secret, that everything that we are looking for in our lives, no matter what our plans are, it's always fulfilled now. And we, our habit is to what you could describe as postpone. Postpone our well-being to some time that never arrives because time's always now. So we don't want to miss that and so that's why even as much as our mind wants to run from, 
from silence, run from here, out of habit. We try to even use that, the recognition that we're doing that, that our mind is doing that. We try to use that as a reminder of our love of being right here. So I think it's a fun thing. You may not think it's so fun to count the amount of times that you want to be elsewhere. How many, count the moments that your mind is leaning toward the end of the sitting, the end of the day, I'm sure it already is. The end of the month, all the ways that we actually hypnotize us ourselves into thinking that we'll find more happiness somewhere else. And all the while we're actually reinforcing a feeling of, I can't be happy now. I can't be well now. I can't be at peace now. This is what we, so a lot of what we notice in our practice is this, uh, what, what um, a Tibetan teacher named Noshul Ken put. He, we, what we notice is there's uh, within us a natural peace and happiness. He says in one of his poems, rest in natural great peace. He doesn't say created peace. He says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Samsara is the endless wandering, our endless search for that future that never arrives. So rest in natural great peace. So, um, I forgot where I was, but too busy resting. So we, oh yes, I was saying that what we do in our practice is we, we, we recognize this. We, uh, we realize, recognize, get used to this natural great peace. But we also, because nat that natural great peace of being when we're here, also what is inherent in being here and being awake is what, uh, what is the, in, within the essence of each of our minds is clarity is cognizance, the capacity to clearly comprehend what's happening. And so inevitably, not only will you settle back into what we might call natural great peace, but you also will also much more clearly discern, clearly see all the ways that your mind doesn't want to be here. And we, we put it to good use. We let it all guide us back here. That's why I called it equal opportunity mindfulness. Even the even our most difficult feeling can be the reminder of, of our um, desire to be here. Even, even our deepest aversion or irritation or frustration or rage, we try to feel it here. We try to bring, it, bring ourselves here through feeling whatever it is that's happening. So that means you do not, in the course of your practice of mindfulness, because of mindfulness is equal opportunity, in the course of your mindfulness, mindfulness does not care what's happening. It treats everything equally. It, it invites everything. So there is nothing in, the, in your mind or in your body that shows up that shouldn't be there, that you need to uh, do anything about or undo or get rid of. And then in, that, in the process of non-interference, of non-manipulation, of just seeing things, what's going on now? We see that whatever comes goes anyway. 
and then we're, our, our heart is free from the constant demand that we make things different than the way they are, that keeps us in that compulsive doing. Now that doesn't mean that we don't want to, we, when we open to reality, we're going to find a, a world that's nuts. The fruits of all the, all the compulsive trying to escape the present. So there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there is a, a mess. However, and we all, if we're, our hearts are open and clear, we're going to want to do whatever we can to help. That's the fruit of wakefulness, is compassion and caring. It's not, uh, it's not indifference, it's just passionate caring. But we realize that, uh, that the only way that we can affect any kind of change in this world is to be that change ourselves, is to, as one teacher put it, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. <laughs> and as long as people are the way they are, the world will be the way it is. If we want a peaceful world, a, a wise responsive world, there has to be peaceful, wise, responsive people. It's not something you can impose. It's something that starts with each person. And how do we, so then we, it doesn't mean we don't do everything we can to help, but we've, we take on the radical social action of, of working on our own uh, tendencies of mind to act out. To, we, we work on ourselves to be non-harming. The way we establish usually every retreat even day-longs, as we, make, we invite people, not make people, we invite everyone to make the commitment to express what it would be like to be pretty much perpetually awake. And when people are perpetually awake, they don't cause harm to one another. When you're perpetually awake, it's really hard to lie, to steal, to cheat. It's, large, it's hard to exploit. But we're all practiced at being a little bit unconscious, so we have to use these training guidelines that help us uh, act and live in a way that is non-harming. So we make the commitment usually not to kill our own spirit, not to kill the insects around us, to, to have a reverence for the life that's present. We make the commitment not to take what is not offered, to be content with what we have and to respect other people's property here on the retreat. So you, don't, you can feel safe here. We make the, the Commitment, at least over the course of the retreat, and I didn't say this explicitly at the beginning, but we make the commitment to noble silence, to being, learning to be quiet with ourselves, not be so dependent on contact for our, uh, on verbal contact for our sense of well-being, so that we're at home in ourselves, so that when we're, so when we're with other people, we're actually easier to be with, because we're not so demanding and needy. So we make the commitment of noble silence, and when we do speak, we try to speak uh, truthfully, all in behalf of living in harmony with life and with ourselves, with each other. And we make the commitment, at least over the course of the retreat, to, uh, to being, it doesn't seem very relevant here on a day long, but to, uh, we practice celibacy. And I guess on a day long, it means celibacy in your mind, that you don't spend your whole day using your vital energy to have sexual fantasies or to try to, get, try to make connections with people in that way. Instead, we use our vital energy to, to wake up, to notice what's the engine that's driving us to constantly be in a state of seeking. And finally, we make the commitment to, um, uh, to refrain from anything that we usually use to intoxicate our minds. 
other than the very nature of our mind. And that means we usually encourage people not to uh, be so obsessively reading or writing, uh, but to learn how to uh, be with yourself. And it's very rare in this world to do that. So, we, so it's, a, it's something that builds a lot of confidence, just like learning to be with the silence builds a kind of confidence. Learning to be with ourselves in solitude builds a lot of confidence. And it's such a gift to people who have to live around you every day. You're just easier to be with. So how did I get on that topic? Anyway, it's all about learning how to, not, uh, how to live in the present moment, not postpone our well-being, not to wait to be whole. Because you are, at, in your deepest nature, every single person here is whole. You only imagine that you're not. And the feelings that you have of, of unworthiness or not enough, that's just conditioning. It's, and it's something that we try to notice in our practice, but we, don't, we stop believing as much. And we, we start to believe more our immediate and direct experience, which is not so easily describable, is it? We're just here. Anybody find anything wrong with you right now if you don't look back and you don't look ahead? No tricks here. It's just tasting of taste of reality. How does that square with all those, those versions of yourself that have been playing through your mind and all about your situation and all about your past and your future? Where's the evidence for you not being okay now. So this may only last a moment, but each moment of simple, mindful attention will help you gain some confidence that you're actually not as bad as people say. No, just kidding. <laughs> you're not as bad as you think. So I suggested to you before that um, that the Buddha was very, um, he waxed very boldly about the, the value of placing your mind in your body. And I thought that I would actually read the section of the, of the discourse where he, it's from a set of discourses called the Anguttara Nikaya, which means just the numbered discourses of the Buddha. And this one, and I'll just read a couple paragraphs, but this is the one where he talked about mindfulness directed to the body. If you learned one thing, that's it. I mean, that, that will help you. If you just keep your, put your mind in the same location as your body. You may realize how hard that is. <laughs> but anyway, here's what he said. Even as one who encompasses with his or her mind the mighty ocean includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean, just so, O monks, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. One thing, O monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, another way of saying freedom, and and refuge, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a, ble a pleasant dwelling in this very life, 
to the realization and the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, the body is calmed. The mind is calmed. Discursive thoughts quiet naturally, and all wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge reach the fullness of development. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. I guess I'll read one more. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, ignorance is abandoned. Supreme knowledge arises. Delusion of self is given up. And just delusion of self, it means the difference between the stories about yourself and, and the, the reality of yourself. It doesn't mean you're not here. It just means that you touch the reality. The delusion of self is that, mistake, that case of mistaken identity that's always playing in your mind. You relate to what I'm saying? Maybe not. So again, I'll read this. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, ignorance is abandoned, supreme knowledge arises, delusion of self is given up, the underlying tendencies are eliminated, the fetters are discarded. That's the things that keep us, um, keep us looking elsewhere, keep us in confusion. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So I read that now because uh, we will, during the course of this next sitting, <coughs> we'll expand the meditation to include not just the, the sensations of breathing, but all the other sensations that will naturally call your attention. Okay? And this is the first reminder that, this, that mindfulness is not just a breathing meditation. It's not just mindfulness of breathing. That's the first practice. It's called anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. But it's part of a larger practice of mindfulness directed to the body. So please find your upright posture again. Refresh yourself in whatever way you need. Again, shift from side to side or front to back. <coughs> and let your eyes close softly. <coughs> And once again, feel the contact of your rear and the cushion. Just let everything drop to the earth, supported by the earth element. Hardness, the pressure. And let everything that has happened prior to this moment drop to the floor. Just plop. Have that sense of letting go, of letting be of yourself just as you are. As Ajahn Chah put it, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete <coughs> peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end.
So as we settle back into the moment, feel our sitting body, sitting posture, we allow ourselves to connect again with the, the fact that our body is breathing and as, as intimately as possible we feel the sensations sink into the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath. The miracle of the life-breath. And we let this direct knowing of the breath be a, a guide to this vital present. And we feel the, how our bodies are enlivened by reality, by being present. We feel that sense of embodiment with awareness. We call this embodied presence. We continue to use the breath as our primary anchor as our home base, connecting with and sustaining our awareness through the duration of the in-breath and the out-breath. And it's often at the end of the out-breath and before the next in-breath, there's often a little space or a gap. And that's often when our mind drifts into fantasy. So it can be helpful to sustain awareness in the space between the breath, if you notice one, by either feeling your whole body at that time or some touch point, your lips or your hands or your buttocks. So it'll be the sense of breathing in, breathing out, and then touching. Then hovering in that touch sensation that's felt in the gap between the breath, hovering there until the next in-breath calls your attention again. And finding that place where the breath feels most clear, most accessible, might be the nostrils, might be the chest or belly, might be the whole body. And just attend to one half breath at a time. But also during this sitting, we'll expand the instructions to include other sensations as well as sounds. If any sound becomes stronger than the sensations of breath, we simply allow ourselves to become aware of hearing. Let the sound arise and pass away. And when it's gone, no longer compelling, vanished, and we connect again with our breath. As well, if any sensations, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, become stronger than the sensations of breathing, we let the breath recede to the background and let our attention rest in the foreground of whatever that predominant sensation is. It could be aching, or burning, or stabbing, or itching, or tingling, or coolness, or warmth, squeezing, searing, stabbing. Could be any number of sensations. 
softness. If any sensation becomes stronger than the breath at any part of our body, we let it fill our awareness, try to receive it, and not only receive it and notice it, notice its quality, but, but accept it. And then investigate what happens to that sensation when it's felt. Does it get stronger? Does it stay the same? Does it vanish? After you've noticed the behavior of the predominant sensation, it's begun to fade or be less compelling or has passed away, then in behalf of staying anchored to this unfolding present, we connect again with our breath. If it's a particularly painful sensation, we try as much as we can to accommodate that unpleasantness and we feel its unpleasantness. But if you notice that you start to get reactive or tight or fearful, then feel free to shift your attention momentarily either back to the breath or to some other sensation in your body that you can accommodate more easily so that you remain at least here, awake. So no need to force yourself to stay with something that you're becoming quite reactive to, but it can be helpful to notice and accommodate even the unpleasant sensations. In the meantime, settle back into the moment, mind soft and alert, tension gentle and precise sinking into the experience of this breath, of this moment.
no matter how many times or for you realize that you've been lost in thought or for however long you've wandered, each moment that you recognize that it is a moment of re-arising awareness, it's a moment of mindfulness. So no need to judge the wandering mind, it's completely natural just to keep appreciating that moment of reawakening. And once you're awake to where you are, relax. On behalf of staying anchored to the unfolding present, connect again with your breath or your body or sound, whichever is predominant. Keep it simple, just this moment, just this breath, just what's predominant. It's like putting the puppy back on the paper, do it gently.
Notice what's predominant right now. See if you can accept the experience that you're having. How does it feel in your body? If you are straining or struggling, falling into dullness, feel free to very mindfully Deliberately refresh yourself and begin again. Every moment is a new beginning. You can always begin again.
So anybody waiting for the bell to ring? Uh, just to say it's um, a real pleasure for me to be sitting with you. Really appreciate your staying with the process this morning. Because settling in, as I said, the insight at the beginning is often, uh, I said it slightly tongue-in-cheek, but often bad news. But we do realize once we stop the fruit of our lives, often what we experience is a deep level of fatigue. Often we're moving at such a pace, our, our busy is, uh, is the cause of bypassing a lot of our organism's need for, um, for that, that healing power of being. And, and once we get rolling, then it's hard to stop. And so this is, this is sometimes a bit confronting when you come on retreat and you feel the tired or you feel how disembodied you felt and how restless and how agitated from beginning to have our mind in the same place as our body. So it's a a little bit, bit of a bumpy ride settling in, so don't be surprised. Don't, it's not personal. It's just, just the fruits of, it's just the way it is. And we try to accommodate that. And, and ideally, you don't want to judge your practice at all. You just want to see what's, show, what's going on and let it all be the cause of, of um, insight. And, and then also the freedom to refresh yourself anytime you need to. Uh, obviously, stillness of body, settling into stillness, stillness of body helps to promote stillness and quietness of mind. However, sometimes it's not meant to be a torture test. And sometimes uh, our body starts to uh, be so, we start to experience such unpleasantness that to try to remain still, it's just our mind gets too reactive. And so at those times, it's really wise to refresh yourself and loving. So it's really a wisdom and love practice. And you always think of what's the most wise and loving way to approach this right now. And at first we may not know that. We're so used to distracting ourselves and thinking that's wise. And, and it, unfortunately that makes it harder and harder to be with ourselves. So, but it's a process. And so take your time. And let's see the other thing I wanted to say. Did any of you notice more sensations? Any of you able to just feel them and see what happens to them? Or any other comment you wanted to? Not necessarily, I just felt. Felt the sensation. Well, actually, I could say something. I've been on longer retreats here. You've been on longer retreats? Longer, a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And it, when you were speaking just now, it, it came to me that I'm, only, I'm, I'm not anywhere near relaxed. And I know what it's like to be here a little bit longer and what, beginning to just really Yes, you're not as relaxed. You know what being in the flow feels like, and you're and you're not there yet, right? Your practice has been dormant. And, uh, my practice has been dormant for a while, but um, I guess where I am is uh, kind of remembering where I was at the beginning when I first started meditating which I kind of feel like I'm back at now, Well, that's true. in a way. I'm really happy you're saying that because that's how it is for anyone who comes to a retreat. Whether they practice for 50 years or not, settling in is, is we're not as relaxed as we might be at the end. Yes. And that's why, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's why we don't make relaxation the goal. We don't even make settling in the goal. We make learning how to be with just the way it is 
our goal. So the goal is realized in just noticing what you noticed. Yes, and like I could compare it to, um, I'll share this. I'm a recovering alcoholic and I sponsor women and it's very interesting to see when they come in, uh, they're all fired up and excited that they're not using a substance anymore. And then after a little while, they start to feel their feelings and they start to, you know, the sensations more in their body and, and the thoughts in their minds and the feelings. And sobriety's not so fun anymore. It's not such a pink cloud anymore. Yes. And that's what this practice, you know, yes. this. Yeah, it's not a bliss kind of trip. A thing. Yeah. But bliss, you'll notice that there is bliss as a byproduct of being, of learning how to flow with those moments. In fact, my most joyous moments have been ones where I was sitting with something really unpleasant and my mind stopped being reactive to it. And to me, that was the greatest revelation in practice. So I, I'm really glad that you're naming that, that it's not, this is a, not an out-of-body experience. It's an in-the-body and it's not an, always a bliss trip. But yet bliss is often the byproduct of of a mind that's not clinging and not reacting. So thank you. Anyone else, what have you been, what did you notice in the, or any question about the instructions or description, please. Um, I kind of have a question about daily living. Um, I'm in college, so I do a lot of planning and applying for things constantly. Mm. I was wondering, um, how can you stay present? The question. The question is, how can you stay present in your daily life when you constantly have to be making plans for the future and decisions for How the next How can you months. stay present in your daily life when you constantly have to be planning and visioning and strategizing and all those things? Well, the good news is that all planning, all strategizing, all visioning, all, uh, all um, uh, what's it called, um, all implementing, everything that you just described happens in the present moment. You can't plan in the future. You can only plan in the present moment. So it's really a matter of not losing, as one teacher put it, don't let your mind leave your body. It's a matter of knowing that you're here planning. The tendency in planning is to be so lost in our plans, to, lose a, to become disembodied, to lose our sense that we're here planning. And so what we do in meditation is we say, first things first, let me make sure that I'm oriented to where I'm at, I am, and know that I'm in the present planning. And that this is, and then I'm not planning right now in order to be whole. And, and I'm not planning to be happy. I already have that. I'm going to plan right now, and then I'm going to continue to be whole as I execute my plan. That was the word I was looking for, execute. The tendency is to be caught in our plans and then have our plans be associated with with getting where we want to go and being happy, and we leave our body in a state of of we leave ourselves disembodied in a state of suspended happiness and then there's there's all that life in between that gets missed while we're busy projecting our plan so we, instead we start first I'm here I'm planning I'm visioning this is what needs to be done right now and you never have to leave the present moment to do that in fact you couldn't do it anywhere else it's just a matter of keeping that touchstone the realization that I'm only and always here planning is one of those things that happens here Please. How do you how do you address falling asleep during meditation? Uh, well, we don't let anyone stay here who's sleepy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said before, that the that the common theme, especially settling in, is an alter, is either uh, either sleepy or restless or both alternating. 
and I just want to explain a little bit so that you can be your own authority about how to deal with one or the other. There are many reasons why we get sleeping. Some of it is avoidance, and, but we're not going to talk about that right now. We're talking about the, the settling in process and, and the cultivation process that happens in meditation. And there's two basic things that, that we are cultivating uh, in our practice. We're cultivating tranquility, because when you put your mind and body together, it produces tranquility. When it's quiet and the conditions are right, tranquility happens. So all of us will have a higher or lesser, a higher or lower degree of tranquility at different times. The other thing we're cultivating is the recovery, as I've been talking about, the recovery of our vital energy. Our, our energy system gets so diminished by living in our imagination all the time. It gets so diminished by, um, by being so excessively busy that we, we tend to be exhausted or our, our vital energy system is just diminished. And, and we, feel, we feel it often, it just crashed. And that's why we, and it's partly uh, being so dependent on that, um, that, like that gerbil who's dependent on coffee or stimulants of one sort or another. So what you'll find in when you come on a retreat or when you do your practice is that there will be an ever-shifting balance between energy, vitality, and tranquility. These two are, we're working with these two, energy, tranquility. When tranquility is high, which often happens at the beginning because there's, it's quiet, not much going on, a little signal goes to our brain and says, hmm, this is a lot like nighttime, I have permission <laughs> to check out. So we just start to relax and, and slide into our normal, tranquil, at least our tranquil period. But also there's a tranquility that comes from being present in our body and being with others in quiet. But if that tranquility rises, which it often does before our energy, because our energy is a little bit beat up, when you have high tranquility and low energy, you have this. We often joke at Spirit Rock, and those of you who've been here know that they say that the room often looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> and often this is just because tranquility happens first. And we have what, what the Tibetans called at first, there's a lot of what they call stupid shamatha, or stupid meditation. And that does, it's not a personal thing. It just means that you have a lot of tranquility. And there's actually a healing power in that, of just being quiet. But there's not much attention. There's not much energy. So it's healing, but it's not, you won't learn that much. You will get a rest, and you will get some healing. So at first, that's really common. And the, the reverse is also true at different times, that you have a lot of energy, but you don't have much tranquility. And that's what we call restlessness. And what we do when we have low energy and high tranquility is we f the only adjustments we make are what it is that creates the conditions for us to be able to pay attention. And so if I need more energy to pay attention, I'm first and foremost, I'm going to try to do something that will, won't interrupt my practice, but will help pick up the energy enough to balance the quietness that I'm starting to feel. And the first thing that we mostly recommend is that you stand up. Or for, if you're not willing to stand up, take a very precise posture. 
Make sure that you're not sitting with your back against the chair and just kind of slinky. Let your back be free. Take a precise posture. You may want to practice with your eyes slightly open. And, even be, and before you leave your eyes slightly open, open them really wide and take in the light. That will often stimulate a little bit of energies. You notice how in the middle of the night, if you see a light, it's harder to get back to sleep? Well, when you take in light, that often awakens our, our system. But don't turn that into a big project. Just then practice with the eyes neutral, not really looking at anything, just kind of an empty gaze, as though you were looking from the back of your neck. Just, but then you keep your attention back on the, wherever it is that you're feeling the breath. But if you're willing to, I'd like to invite everyone to stand up. Just that little extra energy, not now, I don't mean it literally, <laughs> when you're tired. And that little extra energy that it takes to hold your body up will sometimes balance the tranquility. You'll find that you can be pretty mindful. Uh, it's maybe not as, uh, you don't look like a Buddha statue that when you're standing, but it's really equal. And then the other thing that helps build energy is obviously continuity of practice, but also sometimes people will, will find a benefit of picking up the pace in the walking practice. And why we do walking is partly to build energy as well as, as mindfulness. Uh, so a little faster pace. And then as, if you find that you're restless, you want to make sure that, you're, um, that your um, restlessness often comes from trying too hard, excessive energy. That also makes us tired too, trying too hard. It's, it's what the Buddha called when gr there's greed in the mind. You're trying to get someplace with your practice. And that can often create tension that either makes you uh, restless, trying to get somewhere, or it'll just exhaust you. But, uh, so you want to make sure that your effort is very soft, very receptive. You may want to, I don't know if this language makes sense, but you may want to have the sense of widening your lens. So, Sometimes the me different metaphors that we can use, and I'll, I'll illustrate it later in the afternoon, but the metaphors that we use is let your mind be like a clear, empty sky uh, without limits. And then let the sensations let, be like points of feel, like stars in the sky. Let the thoughts be like clouds. And let your mind be open. That will often soften things a little bit so you're not feeling like your, your mind is stuck between your ears even though there's no one's ever seen one there. Just, there's room for everything. When there's room, we tend to relax. Do you, you have a sense of what I'm saying? Just like, feel as though everything in this room is within your mind right now. I'm in your mind. You're in mine. And then we, we also, when we do that, we tend to feel a little more connected, too. Uh, so the restlessness and sleepiness. Thank you for that question. Please. She's going to bring you a mic. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so one of the things I'm finding myself struggling with yes. is um, this tension between, on one hand, knowing this is really good for me, and on the <laughs> other hand, uh -oh. feeling um, somewhat selfish or guilty that I'm not home with my kids or doing all doing what I maybe should be doing oh um, <laughs> and so it's you know that's, that's kind of that's 
wanting, you know, really liking all the words you're using and, and getting there and then kind of getting this sort of... Doubt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being that voice that uh, many people have. Well, I so appreciate that we are all conditioned to be with people all the time, doing what we should be doing. There's all kinds of lists, and you get to see your own conditioning when you practice. Mm -hmm. and, and there's also, a, because it's so, this is caring for yourself, it's often, it's often interpreted as selfish. It's all about me. When in fact, this is probably the most unselfish thing you can do for your family, your kids, for the people who have to live around you every day, and for all beings everywhere, as I mentioned earlier today, is that the, the, um, really the, what the world needs is more people who are centered, who are a little bit more balanced, who are kind, who are, um, who are skillful. And the only way that that really happens is if we take care of ourselves. When we don't take care of ourselves sufficiently, we end up more preoccupied, more self-involved, more cut off from the flow of life, more absorbed in what I need and what I want to have, and then we're actually not so good with our kids. I have a, a daughter who's about to be 10, and I noticed if I haven't recharged my batteries, I'm not as available. When I recharge my batteries, I'm, I, can, I have inexhaustible resources for her and for my family and for, and for um, people I work with. So it's really, it, it takes a, it's an acquired understanding, but it is the most unselfish thing you can do. I, that's why I called it before radical social action. It's really, this is, you're, you may not feel like you're engaged in social action, but you are. Because, like I said, the world is the way it is because we're the way we are. <laughs> so that part, um, it's, it's an understandable question. Um, I've yet to see somebody who, who cared for themselves in this way who didn't become um, more responsive to their, the people and the environment around them. How that expresses itself is different for each person. But you're not spending your whole life quiet. You're spending a, a day taking care of you. It's hard for us. We're just so used to think associating being acceptable as if we're uh, if we're giving or if we're busy. So, so I, I only invite you to just notice that as a voice. Don't believe it. Oh, there's the doubting mind. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Please. Radical acceptance or radical happiness? No, I don't know it. Anyway, she studied under Adashante and um, she talks... Uh, a lot about the egoic mind and yeah. how it's like just the mind and as you put it it's very it likes all the excitement and all the drama of life and yes. the, versus the self actually just being and I find it very hard in moments where I feel like okay I should actually just be enjoying this moment but it's boring <laughs> and <laughs> so my mind goes to all these other no, places. Boredom is a really good sign in practice that usually means that the some of the excessive uh, stimulation is beginning to fade and you're actually beginning to taste yourself uh, independent of the of the drama and so we consider that that's a place that we rarely navigate the first part of the afternoon will be all about working with mental states like boredom all the other ones that tend to 
hypnotize us and trance us into thinking that we have to be doing something else. And, but boredom, just to give you a little sneak preview, boredom is one of those that uh, Fritz Perls, who's the founder of, of uh, Gestalt therapy, said boredom comes from lack of attention. If you're really attentive and curious, you can't be, suffer you, you can't be anything but, but engaged. And, and the present moment is so rich when you're, when you're curious, when you're interested. So uh, often our attention, we, we've become so dependent on excessive stimulation that just ordinary rich experience doesn't even get us anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And we can't feel. And that's, I was just late, I don't know how many of you listened to Green 960, it used to be called Green 960, it's a radio station. And there was a fellow on the radio as I was driving out here who's written this book, uh, who writes for all these big publications, but he wrote this book on sexuality and, and he was, um, he very openly talked about how he uh, used to uh, he used to hurt himself, he used to self-mutilate. And that there are countless people who do one form or another, of, and they do it in order to feel. Because either the mental torment is so much that they can't feel, or the, the dullness from having been, been so cut off from life, they can't feel. And so at the first sign when we're beginning to settle in is we feel dull, bored. And usually we don't let ourselves feel bored. And, but if you did, you'd feel, and that's what I'll invite you to do. Oh, boredom feels like this. Become interested in boredom. You'll, it'll have certain sensations. You'll have certain thoughts, maybe. But it's just boredom. And you'll see that, like every other state of mind, it's a changing condition. And then if you let yourself sink into it and let it, let it ferment a little bit, you'll fall into a state of, of quietude that you've never known. Yet you recognize it at once as... As, um, as home. But, as long, but what we normally do is immediately run from that. And that drives so much compulsion. So what we do here is say, oh, bored. Bored's like this. Anyway, I'll say more about it in the afternoon. But thank, thank you for naming that. Thank you. Last one, and then we're going to have some lunch. Um, I just had a, um, when I was sitting here, I had this um, like grasping for intellectualism. It's on. It's on. It's on. And, um, you had this grasping for I had grasping because I had the monkey mind going. A million things were going on in my head, and I wanted to quiet. And I decided to get into the million of things. So I, I had like monkeys. They're little, you know, visual monkeys. And trying to name the chimpanzees and the monobos and baboons. And this was really bizarre because I was trying to grasp to calm my mind, and I decided to get into, because I was listening to you, to accept whatever was happening. That doesn't mean indulge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I Acceptance and indulgence <laughs> are different. But go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. No, so what, what yeah, I was indulging, for sure. <laughs> Trying to name every, you know, primate. And, and, <laughs> and, something good happened and it's the word forgiveness mm. for myself because I knew what I, I kind of knew what was happening and I thought there's no tranquility here because mm. I'm naming the monkey mind visually and I just said you know something like give yourself a break I, I don't know exactly what it was yes but it was a forgiveness for going there and there was a wave that came through 
you know, I don't know if it was home, but there was a wave that erased it. It erased all of that, like, you know, a poof kind of thing. You had a and poof. It was, I had a poof. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was interesting because, you know, it's only moment. I would yeah. love to be in a place where you feel that all the time and peace on earth of, of, every, of every one of us. But it, just, the, just a poof. Right. Good. Well, we don't, we, like I said before, poofs are a byproduct of forgiving or accepting or not being in contention with what your mind is doing. Not judging your not own. Not judging, yeah. There will be as a byproduct poofs, but we don't make the poof the aim. Because if we make it the aim, then we're happy when we have it and unhappy when we don't. And that's, that's never made anybody happy. That's only kept us in a state of waiting. So instead, we just try to accept whatever we can, notice when the poofs are there, enjoy them, luxuriate in, in a mind that's free of its preoccupations, luxuriate in a mind that, that's free of wanting things to be different for that moment, and get used to that. And that will get stronger. The gaps get bigger. You know, just like in London, they say, you hear on that subway, mind the gap, mind the gap. <laughs> the gap is that moment of noticing it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then there are more, the poofs are longer, but that's not the aim, that's a byproduct. And I'm glad that you, that at quality of forgiveness, it could be forgiveness, acceptance, or just acknowledgement, whatever it is that takes away the, the fighting with your mind is what, we, what mindfulness does. We don't, want to, we don't want to be fighting so much. You can see where fighting has gotten us. Anyway, thanks for, the, thanks for that, and thanks for the morning. Like I said, this afternoon we will uh, begin the afternoon with, with uh, working, continuing to work with the breath, with the body, with sounds, and, but I will include the, what are called the, the, um, the hindrances, the difficult mental states that, come in, that, that uh, run all of our lives to a degree and how to work with them, and all other moods and emotions, how to feel things instead of just think about our feelings. And then finally, we'll include thoughts and images and how to work with thoughts and the different tunes that play through our mind. And then some basic teachings that will help guide how you keep going with your practice. Uh, and some of the core teachings that, that, give, um, that will explain why we're doing this and not, um, and not something else. And so the, our morning is uh, complete. I, I will, I have a few announcements to make. Katie, you can come over and hang out with me as I do this. The, um, I would highly recommend that you, uh, if you can, uh, maintain some uh, solitude during the lunch. That you commit to staying for the whole day. Uh, just close the exit door so your mind doesn't immediately uh, plan your escape. Uh, just for your own benefit, because there are times, especially when we start to settle in, where our mind will just say, well, that's enough, or whatever it is. And, and it really, you've al you're already cooking a little bit, so really give yourself to the process. Uh, and try to keep quiet. If you came with somebody you didn't know it was going to be a silent day, feel free, if you, if you need to, to converse with that person. But try to do it in a place that won't interfere other people, so that we're actually practicing. You know, it's a generosity practice. We're, we're uh, practicing supporting other people's solitude. And that's a real act of generosity because it's not very often that we get to step out of all our identities and our social roles and, and just be present, simply present, knowing 
those six experiences that are happening all the time. Our life is so simple when it comes down to it, we miss it. There's just hearing, tasting, touching, thinking, smelling, you know, life, you miss it. So try to, try to be with yourself if you can, but if not, uh, it's okay, but try to, try to be sensitive to, to that. And then finally, uh, I'd like to just make this announcement about the way that retreats are, are run. Uh, rather than save it to the end of the day, I thought I'd say it now. That all the retreats, except for the ones that are, um, I think there may be a few things here that are, I think all the retreats are, are run on what's called a dana basis. Dana is the word in Pali for generosity or uh, gift, where what you pay to be here covers about 70% of what it costs for you to be here. And the other 30% has been offered as a practice of generosity by people who've come to the retreats, have benefited, who felt gratitude, who then wanted to support other people being able to come here to support the prices being able to be, be kept low enough so that they're accessible, so it's accessible to as many people as possible. So already you are the beneficiaries of, of many people's generosity. But whatever it is that you offered here, whether you were, where it was a friend's fly free or whether you paid for the retreat or whether you shared the cost or whatever, it only goes to that portion of what it costs to run Spirit Rock. Never at Spirit Rock does it go to support the teacher. Uh, so I'm not paid by Spirit Rock. Uh, I come here and my practice of generosity is to offer what I, my love and my, my um, support and what I've learned. And in a tradition that goes back 2,600 years, the teachings have always been offered that way freely because you can't put a price on them, priceless. So they're accessible to everyone. And also because the Buddha uh, felt that it was really important for people to, uh, to cultivate and appreciate the, the liberating and joy-inducing uh, practice of giving. And so there was always this this, uh, I call it cybernetic, this give and take, this, this mutually dependent relationship between those who, who receive teachings, uh, the monks, the nuns offered the teachings, that was their practice of generosity, and for 2,600 years, those who receive teachings, their practice of generosity is to provide for the requisites, the needs of the people who are offering them. So that's how, you, that's how it all came here. And it's a beautiful system. It's kept the teachings alive for 2,600 years. But you can't put a price on it. It is a practice of cultivating generosity. So the invitation is, if you feel, after reflecting on it, any, that you value what you have learned, that you value wanting to support others to be able to practice, because really when you offer dana or generosity to me, you're actually offering it to the next group I'm able to be with. So you become part of a stream that goes back 2,600 years. But the encouragement is for you to practice, make it as a practice of generosity, to consider making generosity a practice in your life in general, because it's one of those things that we can verify, that it's always a gift. Generosity brings gladness to the giver and to the receiver. It's one of those tried and true things. The, the way the Buddha talked about it, he said, if we, if we knew how valuable this, this quality is, this trainable state of mind, we wouldn't let a single meal pass without sharing it. We practice generosity. 
It says there's joy in the thought of giving, and you can think about how that works in your life. Joy in the act of giving and joy in the memory of having given. So there's always, there's a lot of joy associated with giving. When it comes to resources, money, everybody is in a different place. And this is not obligatory, it's not, uh, it, this is a voluntary offering. And yet if, the idea is if you do give and are able to give, that you give uh, what feels generous to you, so that you actually feel that, that joy of giving. At first, especially around money, we have a lot of tension. So it may be an acquired taste, but we're functioning pretty well on the Donna system here, and I'd like for you to, to experiment with it. You'll learn a lot about your relationship to resources. You'll learn a lot about generosity. And I'll just thank you in advance for whatever comes my way. Uh, and it's a joy for me to practice that. It's a joy for me to realize that whatever I spend my resources on, they, their resource, I'm actually, uh, I always consider that these resources came from people's generosity, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. So good luck with that practice. It uh, can be a little awkward or weird at first, but have fun. Anyway, Katie. Thank you. Um, was this on? Okay. Can you hear me? Great. Uh, my name's Katie. I work here at Spirit Rock. I am the only staff person here, as Howard mentioned, that he is here as, out of his own <coughs> generosity. So if you have any questions, you can find me in the back office. I have a couple of announcements I'll make quick because I'm sure you're all hungry. Um, first of all, if you did not bring your lunch, the closest place to get lunch is at the Woodacre Deli. It's in the town just across Sir Francis Drake. There are directions on the tea table in the hall. You are welcome to eat here in the hall. Please be mindful of the carpet. If you do choose to go outside to eat, I will state the obvious, it is really hot out there. So please take care of yourselves. Be aware of this. Drink lots of water. There was a heat warning going out. So um, you know, make sure that you're taking care of yourself and staying in the shade and whatnot. Also, to be aware of on the land, um, if we have some wonderful little critters that share this space with us that were here first and will probably be here long after us, and those include fantastic creatures such as ticks and rattlesnakes. So um, please be mindful of that when you do come back in the hall, shake yourself off, do a good thorough tick check. And then uh, for rattlesnakes, just look where you're walking, and if you happen to come across one, point it out to a friend and let me know. Um, also, I mentioned earlier, we do have a residential retreat going on up the hill, so we ask you not to go past the wooden gate that has like seven different signs on it saying, please don't go past. Um, it's a nice way for us to uh, hold that container for those people who are practicing in a deeper state and maintaining their noble silence. Um, so then also I just have a couple of events that I wanted to let you know about. There will be another introduction to insight meditation with Dana De Palma here on Sunday, July 14th. She's another one of our wonderful teachers. We are starting a class series. It's actually not a weekly class series. It is going to be a class series of day-longs on the four foundations of mindfulness. It is taught by Donald Rothberg, Sharda Rogel, and Temple Smith. And it is July 7th, August 18th, September 29th, and October 20th. It's a really nice class series for people who are just beginning on the path or would like to, to restudy the four foundations of mindfulness. 
And then we are lucky to have Howie back here in August, on August 24th. He will be here teaching a wonderful day on loving the house that Ego built. It is a day that is offering CE credits for anyone that is interested in that. We have a beautiful array of events and retreats and things going on. So please take a look in the hall, at the back info table, and on our um, online webpage. Um, if you have any questions, let me know. Uh, Big thank you to our group of volunteers today who came in early to set up and will stay here longer to clean up if anyone's interested in volunteer work exchange opportunities. It's a really nice way to um, be more involved in the Sangha. Please ask me, I'll be in the office. And then um, deep gratitude to Howie for coming out and sharing your day with us. Thank you. Thank you. And one last encouragement is that you eat mindfully. Doesn't. Oh, we'll, eat, we'll meet again in one hour. And feel free to, I would, it's a little warm, but I would recommend, if you can, to do a little walking before you come back to the afternoon so that, so that it doesn't look like the Wailing Wall. <laughs> and, uh, but if you, um, but, and also feel free to take a nap if you need to. Uh, so, but please be mindful during the lunch period, and I'll look forward to the afternoon. There's just there's so much to share, so thank you. We will ring a bell at the end of lunch break.